Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. It's an especially tough day up here in Ontario. Everything was starting to pick up. I was starting to see lots of little cracks of light coming through the doors. I was starting to see doors open, almost wide open. And then just today, we uh, we got the, the door slammed in our face again. We, we just got uh, another four-week lockdown, which means my, my kids are going to be coming home and they're going to be online schooling again, which is which is tough. I, I love them to death and I love having them around, but uh, the online schooling is, is uh, it's taxing to say the least. I thought that today would be a really good day to kind of talk to some people who are finding really good ways to make use of their time in lockdown. Uh, this The person that I'm going to talk to today was in the, had just finished several projects and had planned to do a bunch of traveling during the spot during the isolation period uh, before that we knew that we were going to be locked down like this. Uh, she had lots of plans to travel the world and take some time off from production. And then as soon as we all got locked down, she had to completely change and, uh, and kept herself very busy and kind of had to find ways to virtually travel and meet new people in a virtual environment. And I think she has some very unique insights on how we can include diversity of opinion in our industry and how we can kind of, even when we're locked down, we can still find ways to meet new people and uh, and bring new people into the industry. So I hope you will welcome Kathy A. Perkins. She is a lighting designer and professor of theater out of North Carolina. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kathy. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So we were talking earlier and you said that you had actually slated this time off well before we knew that uh, the world was going to shut down on us for a while. Right. I was, my lockdown occurred on a show that I was working at at Yale Rep on March 10th. The show was basically done. And then my last show was going to be here in Durham. We have a, a Lord House, a regional theater called Playmakers. And that was going to be my last show for the season in April. So from May through December, I was, my goal was to travel. I booked, well, thank goodness I hadn't bought all my airline tickets, but I bought a lot of the tickets and booked all my hotels and or, or places I was staying with. I was staying with people in some places. So, so that didn't happen. So I just found other ways to, to spend my time, you know, very uh, productive you- though. Yeah. You must have been gutted. I love traveling and I miss it terribly. Yeah, I, I was going imagine. Yeah, I was going to places that I hadn't traveled to because I, I have this goal at this point. I'm trying to get to at least 70 countries 
within the next 10 years or next five years. And so I was adding five more this year. So anyway, so it didn't happen. Oh, that is a noble goal. Very yeah. noble. Yeah. I, uh, I send my heart goes out to you. I, you know, I have my own collection too. And, uh, to be, to be told that we can't travel is like being locked up in a cage. But, uh, it sounds like you didn't let it stop you any more than uh, a pandemic can stop anyone. It sounds like you were still able to find projects to keep your brain busy and, and reach out. No, I stayed busy. I did lots of guest lectures, workshops. I did speaking engagements, um, which was great. And with the, uh, I mean, unfortunately, the death of George Floyd has made the industry aware of how uninclusive it is. So, um, so this is also giving me a chance for to speak out about you know the issues in the industry. I mean, something I've been saying for the past forty years, but it seems like you know during this period I just have a larger audience to speak to. So, so it's been good in that sense. I'm afraid that the the audience size is the same. It's just I think that maybe people are actually starting to listen. I, I'm hoping that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. No, people are listening. I'm seeing some changes being made, uh, whether they will be consistent. We time will tell. Um, I mean, because I've, I've gone through these. I mean, I try to be optimistic, but, uh, you know, I grew up when. Dr. King died when Dr. King died. Oh, we got to make all these changes, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's like every time, every 10 years or something, there's something, some tragic event. And it's like, oh, we need to become more inclusive in the theater and, you know, all the other businesses. And, you know, it will happen for a year or two. And then after a while, it's business as usual. So I, I hope, I hope this time around that things will change over a long period of time, you know, we'll see permanent change. Uh, have you been watching the Derek Chauvin trial? It is tough. I've been listening to bits and pieces. It's just very hard. I, I can't watch the tape anymore. That's tough. I don't want to bring it, bring into that too much, but uh, I, I think that maybe now that that is, has, is being filmed and it's being broadcast across the world, I think, I think the impact is greater now. Yeah, so much is on social media. I think that's making a big difference. It's unfortunate that's what we have to do to get people to listen. Yeah. Uh, it, it's so much easier for some people to just sweep it under the rug and pretend it's not happening. Right. Because it, honestly, because it benefits them to sweep it under the rug. Mm -hmm. You have been in the lighting industry for over 40 years. You've been quite successful doing... Uh, many different events in in St. Louis and in North Carolina. When did you get started in the uh, theater industry? My freshman year. Well, I guess you would say what working professionally. Yeah, I would say my sophomore year of um, undergrad when I was at Howard University. I was always told what makes you a professional is what you get paid. <laughs> so when people pay you for what you do, that makes you a professional. So, so I, I will say I was a professional starting my sophomore year because I did, uh, I worked in a, a road, a touring house that was connected to my university and okay. I did lots and lots of concerts. So what drew you in? Was it something that you had been seeking or did it just, uh, did it find you? 
No, it sort of found me because I went to um, college with the notion that I wanted to become this famous actress. And so I went to Howard University, which is a historically black college university or HBCU as they're called, which was like one of the, which was the best drama program for African-Americans in the country at the time. And so my sophomore year, maybe the end of my freshman year, my good friend, and he's still a good friend who was a sophomore, he was in lighting. Your freshman year in my department, you know, you had to work all phases of theater, you know, work in the scene shop, makeup, you know, costume, and you had to work on the lighting crew, hanging in focus. And so for this particular show, I was assigned to the light crew. And either he was the stage manager or he was the light, the mass electrician. And so we worked closely together. And we're sitting backstage and he says, uh, this is 1973. He says, what are you going to do with a BFA in acting? You know, I said, well, what do you think? <laughs> Graduate and go to Broadway. And in so many words, he said, I've, I've seen you act. You're OK, but, you know, but I've also seen you hang in focus lights. And, you know, I think you're pretty good at this. And we don't have enough black people working behind the scenes. And, you know, why don't you consider this area of theater because you know you'll never wait tables if you do this you know the lighting people are always working and, and he said you know we got the touring house next door and and this was the 70s and I don't know if you know it much about DC at, at that time DC was called Chocolate City because it was like 80 percent 90 percent black folks and it was also the age of funk so anybody who was anybody came through DC or, and they came through our touring house. So during my, what, sophomore through my senior year, I mean, I had a chance to light pretty much everybody. We're talking about Shaka Khan. We're talking about Patti LaBelle. We're talking about, um, uh, oh God, I can't, the Isley Brothers, um, Weather Report, that's a jazz group. Um, we had Kirby Hancock coming through there and, Damn. you know, a Roberta Flack. I lit her twice. I mean, it was like anybody who was anybody came through there. Either I lit them or, you know, I was assistant lighting on lighting designer. But I had an opportunity to work with all these people. dance companies. I mean, we had dance companies coming from Jamaica, the National Dance Company of Senegal. And it's like so, you know, nice. Yes, that sounds way better great. than waiting tables, waiting for. Uh, oh yeah, a big break. and this was all when I was in school. So I'm working this theater at the same time I'm doing shows in my department and trying to stay a student. <laughs> <laughs> doing your homework behind the behind the console. Yeah, yeah, and so it was just it was just a great time. It was just like one of the best decisions I ever made when I switched to lighting. I didn't even wow. know that you could. I mean, I knew about lighting, but it, it never dawned on me that this was a career that I could make a living. Yeah. It's not really taught to us as at a young age that that's even a thing. We, I mean, especially in the seventies, I would imagine that your parents or any, even your friends would have thought like, what do you mean? You're going to, that's just a hobby. Right. A living doing that. Right. And then particularly for black people, we didn't have access to these kinds of theaters to even think about that. So how but, did this, how did this roadhouse become a, uh, a, uh, a predominantly black theater was it just uh, did somebody make it that way was that a, no it's purpose? because no it's because it's on 
a historically black college campus. Got it. So the Turing House is part of the university. So that's so you, it's, it's one way the university makes a lot of money by having these big shows coming in. So it's a so, 2000 seat house. It's, I mean, it's still there. So basically that place had to be carved out for that specific purpose just to make sure that they had a safe place when they came through town. Yes. Yes. And it, it's basically, a, it, you know, we did concerts there. It's also, you know, huge lecture series that came through there. And, you know, it was, it was a multi-purpose space. I mean, but it was an actual theater, you know, we had wing space and fly rails and everything. So it was an actual theater. That's but awesome. The, the biggest moneymaker were the concerts that came through. We do two concerts. Whenever there were concerts, would be two, two a day. One at 7.30 and one at 10 o'clock. Because we had to be out of the theater by midnight. Uh, that's one of the things that really frustrates me when people start trying to cut uh, artistic funding. Because it's so easy to cut artistic funding, not realizing that the arts bring in more money than they take. You know, oh, yeah. if, you, if you support the arts, it pays for itself. Mm -hmm. Sometimes three and four times over, if, especially if you got some, some major acts coming through. Oh, yeah. Like I said, concerts, dance companies, you know, speakers, comedians, you know. Yeah. I know that when they're done right, a theater with a, with a good concert hall and a theater, they can out, they can out generate even uh, high school football, college football. Mm -hmm. They can, they can bring in the money. Yeah. Yeah. And even though we weren't a union house, we were organized like a union house because my the boss who was who became like my advisor, he was head of the union, the IA union in Washington, D.C., he and the other guy. And so we got paid like union people. We worked union hours. If you worked over eight hours, you got paid. What is it? Double time. If you worked over 12, you got paid, whatever. So we were treated like union people what yeah so as a student as a student so i learned the business very early damn that is that is amazing and, and another way we made a lot i made so much money as an undergrad i was afraid to tell my parents i had a job no we had this <laughs> no no we had this policy you know because we were we were private school private part government school we had this policy you know we people had to everybody had to be out by midnight you know that was the policy and so if a, if a group ran over, it, it depended on who the group was. It's like, uh, so for every 15 minutes you ran over, that's an extra $100 that you had to pay to theater. And so there were many productions where people just kept going to like 1, 1.30. And we were fine. You know, we just sitting there counting the bucks. So if there were like five of us <laughs> on the crew... If there were five of us on the crew, we would split, you know, oh, 500 bucks. It's like, oh, okay. We're about 1975, $100 in one day. That's a lot of money on, on top of our salary. So, so we loved it. You know, you can remember the Funkadelics, George Clinton and the Funkadelics. I know I'm really oh. dating myself. Hell yeah. The deadlock. Oh, they performed to about 130. They just would not get off the stage. They were so high. They would just not get off the stage. Like it's like let them play, let them play. You know, you know the audience stayed, and you know it was great. There were yeah, there were a lot of artists that just went over time. 
<laughs> Kathy's just sitting there counting the money. Yes, it was like hitting that. the lights, counting the money. <laughs> Heck yeah. That's right. That's right. <laughs> oh man. So what was that? Uh, what did you tell your parents? Like, what would you? Did you have to explain anything? Like, hey, so this is my new thing. I'm not going to well, be no, an actor. You know, I, well, no, no. I told them I was switching my major, but you know, but um, it, it reached a point. My father would always send me money every month um, because he, you know, originally I wasn't working, you know. And then I said, oh, I have a campus job, and you know. <laughs> And I said, you don't have to send me any money. He said, you sure you get enough money? You know, he's like sending me like maybe $50 a month. You know, it's like, no, I'm okay. I made 300 last week. So I'll be fine. <laughs> so, he thinks you're like a, a librarian <laughs> or a, an assistant of some sort. And you're like, no, dad, I'm no, no, good. No, I, I told him I was working in a theater, but he had no idea. My parents had no idea I was working late at night and, you know, stuff like that. Were your parents supportive of you going into the arts in the first place? Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Did they and have any art background? No. My parents, well, my, my mother is very artistic. I mean, she could really draw well. But, you know, both my parents had, you know, high school uh, education. My mother never had an opportunity to go to college. So she was very happy. You know, that, well, my, both my parents were happy that all of us went to college. There were five of us. And so they, it was important that we all went to college. They didn't care what we got a degree in. Uh, which are you, the oldest, youngest, middle? I'm in the middle. Yeah, I'm in the middle. Right on. I had three brothers and one sister. So it sounds like you were riding the gravy train up until, I would imagine, uh, come senior year, you didn't want to see that end. Yeah. Well, I mean, what was fortunate, I was able to save up enough money. So when I went to grad school, I didn't have to take out any loans or anything. So... So that was one saving grace. Congratulations. That is yeah. not something you see much these days. Yeah. So so I, I, I put money away. So what made you decide that you needed to go back into school? I think maybe my sister encouraged me to go to grad school. She She's a scholar. She was working on her PhD. She said it's always better to have it than not to have it. And also I was going to school during the, during the time where they were trying to encourage, you know, this is at the end of the civil rights movement. They were trying to encourage more blacks to come into certain programs. Um, and so, you know, I figured if they're going to pay for everything, why not? You know, that was her philosophy. She said, look, if you go someplace, they're going to cover everything. You know, three years is not a lot of time. So I said, yeah. So is I, that what uh, encouraged you to move to, uh, I believe, Michigan for that? Yeah, I applied. Okay, this was about 1976. At that time, there were not a thousand MFA programs like there are now. You know, there's like too many lighting programs, well, too many design programs. Back then, I don't even know if there were 12 MFA lighting programs. It was like Yale, there was Carnegie, there was UCLA, I think UT Austin, maybe one or two others, and then there was Michigan. So I applied to about three. I know I applied to Yale, I know I applied to to UCLA and I maybe applied to Austin and then I applied to Michigan. So I ended up going to Michigan, one, because it was the first college at that time that had the first computerized lighting board. And I was attracted to that primarily because where I worked in DC, my boss, like I said, he was over the eye. Okay, here's some other history and I'm probably telling you more than you need to know. Well, you know about IA, right? Because you have IA in Canada, IATSE. Mm -hmm. Okay, 
for years, IA was segregated. So if somebody said I was in IA 1A or IA 242A, that A meant that was the, the black local. So you had a white local and you had a black local. So it wasn't until, and don't quote me on the dates, I think in the 50s or something like that, that they, they merged local 1A in New York. They, they merged and became part of the main local. And so all the locals around the country, you know, we know New York is the largest and then Baltimore had a large one. DC had a major local. And so my boss at Howard in the Turing House, he had been uh, a president of the black local in DC, but he didn't merge until the late seventies or early eighties. You know, it was your choice if you wanted to stay a black local or join the main local. So he was trying to get me into the local. And I said, I really don't want to be a stagehand. I want to be a designer. And then years later, when I went back to interview him, because I had been doing all this research on the local, and I said, I read where DC was the last black local to merge. And I said, why did you do that? And this guy was so smart. He said it was a strategy thing. He said, what he was trying to do was get as many blacks into IA as possible. So when they merge with the white local or the main local, there would be more blacks in IA in DC than whites. Because what happened, and, and this, is, this is true, what happens throughout the country, once blacks got into the locals, which was controlled by whites, very few got in after that. So you saw most of them in the local once they merged. But as these guys retired, you begin to see fewer and fewer blacks in these uh, IA locals. Oh, damn. Yeah. And so what he did was very smart. He said, I'm trying to get as many people in there, particularly young people in as possible, because, you know, it's going to be hard for you all to get in because we don't we won't be able to control the locals. So if you allow your 1A to be consumed, then you basically just give up all you have been building that whole time and you give it up to whoever the current steward is of. Right, because it was still controlled by the white business people. I mean, the, the issue with local 1A in New York, you also restricted as to where you could work. So if you were in 1A, you could only work up in Harlem. So you could never work downtown on a Broadway show or anything like that. So there were all these restrictions. And so once you merged, that means you were allowed to work anywhere. That's, that's, a, that's a baby step. That's progress. That's something. Yeah. Uh, it depends on who gets to, who gets to control. Yeah. And, and, you know, the, uh, and if you were in 1A, you made less money. So the white locals made, of course, way more money. And so I interviewed a, a lot of the guys in New York uh, and they just said they had no idea how little money they were making compared to whites in IA. <clears throat> One guy, when he, he merged, he got in, he said he ended up working at Lincoln Center. Well, the Metropolitan Opera House. It, it's not the link. It wasn't Lincoln Center at the time. I forgot where it was. And he said when he got his paycheck, he almost panicked because he had never seen a check that big in his life before. He just had no idea they were making so much more money than the black IA guys. Wow. That's news to me. I am yeah. I'm learning something brand new right now. Yeah. That is, 
I, I would imagine that's something that doesn't make it into the theater books. Uh, um, no, <laughs> no, no. I, I want to give the IA credit for making progress, but it sounds like they started pretty far back in the, in the, pro, in the progress books there. They really had to, a long way to go. Yeah, it, it was not an easy, it was not an easy um, battle. It was very difficult. Okay, so that's what's kind of in, led you to go to the place that had the electronic console because they had one of the first electronic consoles. No, computerized console. Computerized. Right, and I was I was interested because, like I said, Mr. His name was Ralph Dines, who was my supervisor at the Turing House, because he was so savvy and he knew everybody. You know, he knew lighting vendors, so they were always coming. And, and the cramped. Crampton Auditorium was like a very state-of-the-art theater in D.C. So everybody was all, you know how uh, vendors are, they're always trying to sell you their latest product. Yeah. And so when uh, products would come out, they would say, oh, Mr. Dines, why don't you beta test our system for like a week or, you know, here's our new system. Why don't you try it out for a week or two? And so I had an opportunity to work on all of these new systems that were coming out, you know, Kliegel Brothers. And again, I'm dating myself. I don't know if you ever heard of Kliegel Brothers. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, Kliegel Brothers and I don't know, was it Teletron? I forgot the companies that no longer exist. You know, you know, here's our new system. And so when I heard that Michigan had a lighting system, you know, uh, computers, like, no, I need to go someplace that has the, the state of the art equipment. And so that's what drew me there. Very um, clever. It's, it's really good to stay ahead of the curve. Yeah, I, it was I a board called Hub. You. Yeah, a company called Hub. I don't even think they exist anymore. H-U-B out of Chicago. They made lighting equipment. And so at that point you had abandoned all acting whatsoever and you were going straight Oh yeah, for I was lighting. straight lighting. Yeah, straight lighting. Yes. And how many people were in your program in the design program? I think there were three of us per year. There were three, three of us. Designers. Yeah, there were like uh nine of us. So there was three per year. Okay. Yeah. Um, you must have gotten some really good one-on-one -on -one attention then. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I mean, I, I had a good advisor. He, he was, he was pretty good. Yes. Cool. And how was the diversity then? I was the first black person I've ever had in a, in the design program. In, how the, was MFA, that? in, in the MFA program, there had been a, a black guy who had gotten his MA years ago in scene design, I think. But uh, like I said, MFA programs were new. In fact, the one at Michigan was so, I didn't know if it had been four or five years old, you know, like I said, these were all new programs. Now, being the only black woman in the program, I, I have to assume that would be kind of isolated. Well, it was, and I was always made aware of it, but you know, I was, I was prepared. I mean, one of the things about going to historically black college and university, we are prepared for once we leave our community. And so I was very much prepared for it. Also, during my junior year, I'd taken a semester to go to Smith College. And if you know Smith College, it's a, a women's college up in Massachusetts. So, you know, I was, I was okay. prepared, you know. Okay. So you kind of had an idea of what was going to happen. Was it, was it anything consciously, was anybody consciously seeking to exclude you or was it, was it subconscious? Um, no, I think with my classmates, no, they, I never felt excluded 
uh, they always made a comment about my being, you know, black. <laughs> it's like, oh, you know, we never had anybody black here before. Oh, you're our first black person, you know. You know, it was it was those kind of comments. Okay. You know. So it was acknowledged. Oh, on a regular basis, yes. <laughs> yes, on a regular basis. Don't know what that feels like. Nobody's ever acknowledged me being the first. And then, you know, and then I always have to, I mean, then I would, I was always making comments about, you know, the course material and, you know, it needs to be more representative of other people. And, you know, and, you know, they were just totally clueless. It's like, oh, really? It's like, you know, they never even thought about it, you know. Can you give me an example? Please. Oh, one example was in one of my classes, we had to take what was called world drama. Uh, that was, you know, a requirement for the curriculum. And so I went into the class. I was the only black person in there. And uh, I'm looking at the syllabus. You know, things were on paper back then. And I'm looking at the syllabus. You know, we're talking about world drama. And I'm looking at uh, the UK, Spain, Italy. <laughs> the European countries and of course there's always Egypt and then oh Japan yeah there was Japan and then I'm flipping the page over and it's like okay am I missing a page and at the end of the class I went up to the professor and I just said is is this what we're is this all we're learning on the syllabus he says yeah there's a problem I said, well, kind of. I said, this is world drama. And it's like, you know, excuse me, but I just came from a historically black college. I came from D.C. where I know there are places, you know, it's like 50 some countries in Africa. And, you know, there's the Caribbean and there's all of South America. <laughs> it's like, aren't we missing parts of the world? You know, it's like a lot of the world missing. And he sort of got offended and he says, well, this is, this is what we're covering. And I, I went to my advisor and I said, I'm not going to take this class. You know, I said, this is an insult. And <laughs> he was very... Three quarters of the world. Yeah, it's like, where's the rest of the world, you know? <laughs> so he said, he understood and he said, okay, this, you know, if you can find something that sort of fits in, you can take it. And I did. Oh, man. So now the student has turned around to be the teacher and you're like, hey, I'm just going to expose you to world drama, the rest yeah. of the world. Yeah. And I did the same thing with my costume professor, with the costume class. It's like, you know, it's like, again, you know, Africa is a continent. You know, you don't even have one country when you start talking about costumes, you know. Oh, it's so easy for them to fall into that trap. Like, oh, no, we're being very inclusive. We included such countries as France and England. And no, Italy. they always say we have Egypt, you know. Token Egypt. Yeah, Egypt, which most people <laughs> don't even consider as Africa. But anyway, that's why it's always there. <laughs> so, so, no, grad school is interesting. Throw in Egypt there for the feel-good country. Make it feel like yeah. they did something. yeah. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I uh, as an American, I, I have no, been known to fall into that trap, too. We're thinking that the entire world is everything that I know. And then anything outside of that is not actually part of the world. Right. Uh, right. You know, I, I've had to work really hard to make sure that that is not my my uh, my go to word anymore. Like uh, like the World Series. Isn't right. It, it's not the World Series. It, it's really just. 50 continental 50 states, states. Yes. That's right, it. right, right. 
I don't think it's even all 50 states. I think it's just the, the, the continental states. That's, so how very grandiose to call it the World Series. Yeah. <laughs> right on. So you made it through, what was it, three years, four years? Yeah. Well, you know, technically, what was unique about Michigan's program, it was two-year program. I mean, it was still a, a three-year program, but we went over the summers. It was still six semesters, but we didn't have summers off. We literally went straight through. And I don't, I think it was like one of the only MFA programs that did that in the country. And then they stopped because they realized that was straight through was killing people. Uh, and that was the other reason why I wanted to go. It's like, oh, I can just get in and get out, <laughs> just moving, just get on out of there. Have you been accused of being a workaholic? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You are, a, you are a real go-getter. Like you just, you don't seem to slow down here. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that was the other incentive. Oh, two years. You know, it's like, oh, but it's summertime. It's fine. It's like, I'll be out of there in two years, you know. Right on. Get in, get it done. Get, get out. In, and then, get out. Yeah. And then get back to work. I would right. imagine that was your goal to, right. get, to get back to making that money. Right. Okay. So uh, now you've got your degree in hand. What's the next step for Kathy? Oh, I got a job at a uh, dance company. By then, it wasn't so much about the money because by then I'd really fallen in love with with lighting and and doing plays and doing dance. I I think I was more interested in dance uh, by the time I got out of school. So when I went to New York, I worked with the dance company. It happens to the best of us. We we lose sight of the money and, and start looking at the art. Yeah, I was very fortunate. I got a job right out of grad school with the dance company. And that was as a result of a friend who I knew because I had applied for countless jobs and, you know, I didn't get them. And this is before the days of the computer. So you had to literally type letters for jobs. I I remember typing tons and tons of letters. (laughs) On a typewriter with whiteout and then yes, put it electric. In I, and... IBM Selectric. I had an IBM Selectric, which was like a top of the line uh, typewriter. <laughs> oh man! And you had a design portfolio then too, right? Yeah, I did. Those are cumbersome. I'm pretty happy yes. that we don't. Uh, yes. I've been. I've talked to quite a few people, and we don't really have those anymore. It's it's a website now. Yeah, it's a website. Back then, it was like mailing to. I, I always used to get angry at my students when they would start complaining. And I just said, no, you don't really, you're not, you guys aren't really working hard. It's like, we didn't have LightWrite or Vectorworks or AutoCAD. You had to do everything by hand. You know, you had to do a hookup sheet by hand. You did a separate instrument schedule by hand. You did a separate circuit schedule by hand. You know, um, you know, everything was by hand. Now you just put information in light, right. And it sorts it into every, you know, data, you know, data sheet that you need. It's like, so stop complaining, you know, <laughs> yeah, you put it in once and then export it to everything else. Exports, you yes. Right. Even exports it to Vectorworks now or take your pictures and get them, you know, what eight, five by eights or eight by 10, that would cost like 20 bucks, you know, for your portfolio. You know, now it's all online. You have digital, you know, digital photograph, you know, you're not even using film, which yeah, I might be the last of the, I might be the last among the last generations to have spent, you know, five, six, seven hundred dollars on a portfolio that I showed to maybe five people yeah. and it just sat in my closet. Yep. I still keep mine. 
It's hard. There's nothing. I still have my templates because I just can't throw them away. I'm, I know I'm never going to use them, but I, I know I still have my drafting table. I can't figure out. I, I just have a hard time getting rid of it. <laughs> no, someone made a table for me. I'm, I'm just emotionally attached to it. Oh, um, that's got some sentimental value. That you yeah. Yeah. My class made it Howard. Uh, she was from New Jersey. Her father was a, a carpenter. I mean, he did carpentry on the side and he was so excited that, oh my God, there's this black woman who's going off to graduate school in lighting. So he made me a drafting table. He said, I want you to have this, a handmade drafting table. I just, I'm just having a hard time getting rid of it. Oh, that's special. Yeah. I mean, I have no room for it now. I mean, I don't even use a drafting table, but you know. So you had to go from place to place with your portfolio looking for jobs. And uh, I can only imagine that when people were expecting a Kathy Perkins, maybe they weren't expecting you to show up. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, I didn't tell you that. Yes. Kathy Perkins is a very white name. It's I very white. I didn't just, I didn't know that until I got to grad school. Just someone told me that. I don't know. A couple of people told me that. And then I realized it when I started looking for work because in, in many instances, I would already be hired for a job and I would just be told to come in for formality just to fill out the paperwork. Because if you look at my resume, particularly back then, or maybe even now, um, and this is even before I was in the union and, you know, uh, the name, then they see I went to Michigan and then I'd also gone to Smith College. That was still on my thing. And unless they knew what Howard University was, it was just assumed I was white. Then it, it became even more difficult when I got into the union. And then I was teaching at Smith College. And then, you know, and then I traveled to Europe because I spent, you know, some time in Europe working. So it was just assumed that I was a white woman. And the fact that I had done black shows meant nothing because most black shows are designed by white designers. So people just saw Kathy Perkins on paper. And then when they saw Kathy, Kathy Perkins, Perkins up, MFA, you know, yeah. University of Michigan, you know, yeah. It was the assumption I was white. Do you feel like you got the assumption more in the U S than you did in Europe? Um, well, when I went to Europe, I went there with shows. So okay. no, I, I think at that time they didn't, you know, they didn't make those distinctions between this sounds like a white name. This sounds like a black name or whatever. Got it. You know. All right. So you you fell in love with dance and you decided that that was your that was your genre for a while. And then uh, how did that it was, work out? It for was you? it was only it, it worked out well. I was with a, a dance company for six months in New York City. It was a black dance company called Diane McIntyre Sounds in Motion, and we were gone most of the time. We were really on the road for the most part. And then I started with her that August of seventy. Eight. And then the funding fell through the end of the year because the grant that paid my salary, she did. She thought she was going to get it and she didn't get it. So I was only with her for like maybe six months. And, you know, I've, I've been blessed. I've never really had to look for a job. Usually something comes up out of, out of the blue. So when that fell through, I ended up getting this shows, two plays that went, it was two musicals that went to Europe. One was, there's a musical version of A Raisin in the Sun called Raisin. So there was going to be a European production that was going to go be based in Switzerland. And in addition to that show, they were taking a new play 
called Owen Sound. It's Owen Owen Sound that was um, developed out of Howard University. And so that Christmas, I was yeah, I was in D.C. just visiting friends, and I was watching the rehearsal of the show. And so when I got back to New York, and I found out that you know the grant didn't come through, and I didn't have a job, a friend called me like the next day and said, "Oh." I have some good news and I have some bad news. And I said, well, let's start with, let's, let's get the bad news out of the way. He says, well, I can't, no, I said, let's start with the good news first. He says, well, I just got a job working for entertainment tonight. And I'm going to be one of the, I don't know, gaffers or something, doing something lighting. And he said, this is a full-time job and it's paying a lot of money. And you know, I'm supposed to be designing the show going to Europe. And I said, yeah, he says, well, I can't go. He says, I can't turn entertainment down for this one-time show going to Europe. He says, you were there, you watched the rehearsal, you can do the show. And I don't want to say no until I have somebody to replace it. So, okay. And so I said, aren't you all leaving soon? Aren't they leaving soon? He said, yeah, in about two weeks. (laughs) So I didn't even have a passport at that time. So I had to leave i had to go i had to go back to dc i mean during this time you can go get a passport in one day that doesn't happen anymore oh yeah that's right that doesn't happen anymore yeah but anyway but i had to take a trip back to dc and go in person to get you know a passport and then just try and get myself prepared to go overseas for six months you know in two weeks but it was a great experience and this was your first time overseas then, of course. It was my first time in Europe. I'd been to like the Caribbean. Okay. But I'd never been across the ocean. And how old were you? So this was what, 78? I was like 24. Oh, what an adventure. Yeah. <clears throat> Couldn't speak a word of German. <laughs> um, <laughs> nope. Because the part of Switzerland we were based in was, um, I don't know if you know, German has... I mean, Switzerland has three different languages, Italian, German. I think think there's actually a Swiss language. There's a Swiss, yeah, okay. Yeah. So it's German, yeah, Swiss, yeah. So a lot of the crew, I was in a German-speaking part of Switzerland, and I had to learn German very quickly because I had to work with the lighting crew, and they all spoke German. There was one guy from Holland who spoke English. So when he he wasn't there, I was on my own. And this was a black dance troupe? No, it wasn't a dance. No, they were actors. One was like, had been in the Broadway production of Raisin. And so they were doing the show and they were going to do the show in Switzerland. Man, what an adventure that must have been. And you were there learning all this stuff for six months. I would, I would imagine you yeah, had I was there from January. And- I was there from January till May, almost June. Okay, so you'd have your own apartment and everything. Well, they put us up in, uh, yeah, an apartment. Because it was about 20 of us that went. It was a big group of us that went. Okay. So, and, and then we toured. We toured. We went to, like, we went to Germany. We went to Switzerland, Germany. We went to Austria. Liechtenstein, a country I didn't, I didn't even know existed. It's like, Lichten what? <laughs> so... <laughs> So what did your parents think of this all at all this time? And you're like, you're leaving for Europe for work in a field that they didn't know could actually be a profession. Well, they were very excited about that. You know, you know, their daughter's going to Europe, 
but it was when I came back from Europe that they had issues. So really? Yeah, because when I came back from Europe, I think it was like either the end of May, early June, I just went back to New York and I was freelancing. And, you know, I was working, you know, I was very lucky. I was getting one job after the next. And I just remember going home to visit my parents. It may have been like July or something like that. And my father said, you know, he he said, who do you work for? And I said, I don't work for anyone. I said, I I freelance. And he says, well, what does that mean? I said, freelancing means that I may be working for somebody, you know, for maybe two weeks. And then I move on to another project and work for somebody else another couple of weeks. And then, um, and then, you know, I just work for somebody else. I don't work for any one person. I just work for different people. And he just said he didn't, it, that didn't sound right to him. Because, you know, my parents were traditional. You know, you get a job, you get a paycheck, you get, you know, your benefits, you get health insurance and a pension and blah, blah, blah. And he, the term freelancing was something he had never heard of. And he says, how do you pronounce what you're saying? I said, it's called freelancing. And he said, it sounded like a loose woman. <laughs> he said, I can't tell my friends, my daughter is in New York City freelancing. <laughs> he says, you know what that sounds like? I said, I don't care what it, I said, I know what it means. <laughs> and he just said, can you just find a teaching job or find a real job and for a little while and go back to this free stuff later because I just can't tell my friends my daughter has all these degrees and she's freelancing you know <laughs> so, so that's how I end up going into teaching <laughs> <laughs> oh they come from such a place of honest care and loving yeah, affection like, you know you, please who do you work for it's like do something always, so that I could tell all my friends how proud I am of you yeah yeah, he said, I can't even tell my friends where you work. <laughs> I don't work for anybody. Oh, but it, so he, he had me cracking up. The right terminology. He could have just said, yeah, my daughter's her own boss. My, my daughter doesn't take shit from anybody and she works for whoever <laughs> she wants to, you know. But he did. Yeah, that's so, it must have been so difficult for him to wrap his head around that. He just said he hated that term. He always hated that term. He said, I don't even like the way it sounds. <laughs> So you decided to find a respectable, a respectable yeah. job in the arts for your dad. Yeah, I started teaching. That's when I started teaching. What a what a loving daughter you are. Yeah, but you know it worked out well because I realized I really enjoyed teaching in Smith College. I had gone there as an undergrad, so it worked out because I knew the people. They were teachers there when I was a student. And it was less than three hours from New York City. So it was still great because I could still freelance in New York. I, I was still doing dance and I was doing concerts because those are the kinds of things I could do on, you know, short period of time. You know, it wasn't, and then I could do plays like doing the Christmas holidays in, in the summertime. So it, it worked out well. That's a good compromise. Your dad could say that his daughter was a, a professor. Right. So that's yeah. And that's all. And you say. could still freelance. <laughs> No, he said she would do shows in New York. <laughs> he never used that term. <laughs> but you knew. You knew. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So uh, it sounds like teaching suited you. You no, sound, it did. It, like it you enjoyed really it. did. Yes, it was. It, I, I really enjoyed teaching. 
were the classes a little bit more diverse at Smith? Yes and no. I think my first lighting class, I had three black, I mean, all the classes were small. There were maybe 12 young people in the class, but my first lighting class, there were three black women in the, in the, in the class. They didn't know I was black until I walked in. Well, I was in the classroom. They didn't know because when I got to Smith, I was 24. So I looked very young for my age and what happened with the job at Smith, it was a last minute hire. You know, I, I got the job like two weeks before school started. So it wasn't enough time for them to say, welcome, so-and-so is coming. It's like, I just got there and it's like, you know, I'm here. So people didn't really know who I was because somebody else had been had been scheduled to to show up in the position. Okay. So anyway. And then you just uh, guerrilla style got dropped in uh, and started teaching. You didn't really have any training beyond what you had well, learned. No one trains. I mean, MFAs, you, we aren't taught to be teachers. I mean, that's always been the big issue. So, yeah. But I mean, I, I did fine. You know, I was a good teacher, you know. Okay. So when did you uh, when did you realize that you also needed to start writing? Oh, this was back at Michigan. This this goes back to Michigan. Um, okay. I, I didn't really I didn't really pursue it until I got to Smith. No, what happened on my very first day of of graduate school? I'm looking for the orientation for the designers. And there's this young white guy, I stop in the hallway and I said, oh, excuse me, I'm looking for the design orientation. Could you please tell me where it is? And I was, I'm thinking he didn't understand what I said. He said, well, the actors are over here. And I just said, no, let me, he didn't know, he didn't hear me well. I said, no, I'm looking for the design orientation. And he said, why? I said, because I'm a design major. And he says, oh, I didn't know black people did anything other than perform. And he was, I mean, he wasn't being facetious. He was dead serious. And I said, well, no, that's not true. We, we design also and uh, we exist. I just came from DC Chocolate City and 90% of the people I worked with were black. And I know we exist because I'm standing here in front of you. And so he says, well, I have a PhD in theater and I've never read anything about black people other than on the stage. And so I, I couldn't continue the conversation. I said, okay, well, I got to go. Thank you. And I just remember being furious all day long doing my orientation, thinking about what he said. I was so angry at him. And then after my orientation was over, and I think I went and had dinner, it must have been around six o'clock. I went to the University of Michigan's theater library, which is very extensive. And I must have been there to about one or two o'clock in the morning. I literally went through every theater history library. And I came out even angrier because he was right. We didn't exist. There may have been a section on what was called the Federal Theater Project from the 30s that had a small section on Blacks who worked behind the scenes. And then there was a, a book by a, a Black historian who'd written a book about Black theater, and I should know his name. And he had a very small section on, you know, Black technicians and designers but other than that that was it there was nothing there out of all the books I went through and I just remember going home calling my sister I was so angry and like I said my sister was working on her PhD and she said well it sounds like you need to write a book this this is a story that hasn't been told and I said well 
I'm not a scholar, I'm not a writer, I don't know how to do this, but she says, you are the person to do this. She said, you can start with the people you knew in DC and in New York and you know, just get a tape recorder and start recording these people's stories. And you don't have to be a great writer, that's why they have editors, you know, just start putting the information down. But it wasn't until I got to Smith in the 80s that I really began to pursue this because you need time to, to research and stuff. So I was at Smith and I got a grant from the Ford Foundation that gave me a whole year off to, to really start the project. So that's one of the good things about being at an institution, you have access to research funds. So that's, that's another thing I learned, uh, the positive of being an education institution. So how long did it take you to put together your first, first book? Well, my, actually, my first book wasn't even on the Black designers. My first book, most of my books have been on Black women playwrights. Uh, I've primarily done articles on Black designers and, you know, stagehands. And um, what was this, 81? In 95, I did a huge exhibition at Lincoln Center on uh, um, a century of African-American stage design. So it, it's it been material I've been, you know, collecting since the 80s. And in 95, it, it culminated into an exhibition that was done at Lincoln Center was on display for like five months from what January, February, March, January to like May or something like that. So that was sort of the culmination of, of a lot of my research on black designers. So I can only so imagine that, at Howard, this would have been common information, but uh, at Smith, it was just a footnote. Yeah. Yeah. But no, the, ex the exhibition was done in New York City right. at Lincoln Center. Yeah. But I started really doing the research while I was at Smith and, you know, even after I left Smith and whatever. Um, and, I, and, I, and I still do the research. I haven't stopped. There's so much to uncover to bring to light and, and just the information is out there. It's just not making it to the people who need to hear it the most. Right. And I would love to do a catalog. I mean, at the time, uh, when I did the exhibition in 95, we wanted to do a catalog, but, you know, we're talking about design. I don't want to do a book full of black and white pictures. So at that time, it was just cost prohibitive to do a, um, a, a catalog of that nature. And I had always wanted to do just a book on black designers, but it's, it's, it's really, there's really no market for um, design, theater design books, black or white. You know, it's just, you know, it's, it's a very small market. It's like, who's going to buy this book, you know? Um, and even the design books that are out there, they're either done with the private press or, you know, USITT does books. Are you familiar with USITT? Of course. Yeah. Okay. So USITT, they will do uh, publications on designers, but it's, it's just not a market for it. Yeah, unfortunately, these are the books that need to exist, though. They, they, mm -hmm. they can't, if they're unwritten, then they'll never make it to the people who need to hear it the most. Right, right. And you need color photos. You know, you can't do a book <laughs> with all black and white images, you know. Right. You know. During the isolation period, it sounds like you spent most of your time compiling a new book. Yes, Um about back in 2014, like I said, I, I do a lot of work on um, women from Africa in the diaspora, uh, playwrights, uh, well, women behind the scene, but mainly write. I don't even want to say playwrights because in many parts of the world, you know, playwright, people don't 
consider themselves playwriting, playwriters, they're storytellers or they're right. playmakers, you know. So that's why I use the term plays loosely. I, but anyway, this book is called Telling Our Stories of Home, International Performance Pieces by and About Women. And so I started the book during COVID, but my interest for the book sort of started around 2014. Um, and, and I think some, I think it was during that period where there was just so much mass movement of people around the world, either leaving their country because of war, leaving their country due to natural disaster, um, you know, religious persecution, whatever. I was thinking about, you know, you had all these hurricanes going on, you had a tsunami, you had this going on, you had other stuff happening in Syria. It was just people everywhere, just getting away, trying to find a better life. And so that happened then. And so instead of doing a book, I decided I wanted to do a festival. I did a festival around telling our stories of home. And I did it here at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So I was able to get all of this money. Again, I could have only done this being at a university. And so I wanted to bring in women from Africa and the diaspora. And we they would come together and we would just do this whole conference around the theme of home. Home could be anything you want it to be. So we, I brought in a dancer from Brazil. I, we brought in women from the Caribbean, you know, scholars, a playwright. I brought in a woman from the Sudan who was a doctor, who was a medical doctor. She just talked about the issue of women in Africa and home and, and healthcare and stuff. Uh, I brought in someone from Rwanda. You know, she talked about the genocide and she did workshops and stuff. So I had someone from South Africa and I just brought in women. Oh, and I brought in these women from India. These are called the Siddhis and most people have never heard of them. These are um, Indians of African descent who've been in India for like over 600 years. And India just sort of don't recognize them. Untouchables. Uh, no, they're below the untouchables. They don't even really? call, yeah, they're below the untouchables. They don't even call citizens. They're called other scheduled people or something like that. They have some strange name, but they live pretty much in the forest in India. And there are a few of them that have, you know, come into the city and are getting an education. So I wanted to bring them because when people think about the slave trade, they only think about, you know, the Atlantic slave trade. They never think about Africans who were taken as slaves to, to Asia. So, you know, there were lots of Africans taken to India, Pakistan, um, Iran, which was, we used to be called what Persia or whatever. So no one ever talks about those groups of Africans. And so I knew these people existed and I was determined to bring some here. Anyway, to make a long story short, so I, I brought them here and they, they talked about being, you know, black and Indian you know, India, India is the only place they know about. They don't know anything about their African roots. So, you know, they're at home, but they don't feel like they're at home. They're not treated like they belong there. So, um, so yes, I was really excited to bring them over. So this was a, a, a big uh, a a festival. And then I, we talked about the criminal system, women in, in prison. So we had all of these panels and we talked about women Muslim women, that's not a topic that's, that's talked about. 
So, you know, so I brought in mu mu Muslim women and women who, who had done studies on, you know, Islam and black women. Cause that's just, you know, and how does that affect your home and, and everything like that? And so it was just a great, it was a great, it was a great conference. It was like for two weeks. These so. are the stories that just don't hit home when you read about them in the paper. It, right. You have to hear them firsthand for them to really make sense and understand the, the horrors that they, that these people are fleeing from. Right. Right. So it was, it, it went very, very well. It was a two. And I, you know, of course I involved my classes in the, the event and, you know, it was, it was well attended, you know, because we're here on a campus and, you know, people got their classes involved. So that was good. So that was good. And so that was 2016. And so when the pandemic hit, I said, oh, well, I can use this time to do the anthology that I wanted to do, you know, years ago. So, like I said, that's what I use this time to do. It's like, okay, I'm going to give myself a year. Hopefully that's when we'll be out of this. <laughs> and, <laughs> we, we're still hoping. Fingers uh, are still crossed. Uh, yeah. And they said, I want that's my goal. I want to do this collection. Um, okay. So with that free time, I would imagine that had involved a lot of re-interviews and, and reaching out to a lot of the people that had, you had joined up with in 2016. Well, no, actually, I didn't use any of those people, except I only used two of the people because originally I was going to the collection of plays was going to be just on women from Africa and the African diaspora. Okay. And then at some point, you know, after this whole pandemic hit and this whole thing about George Floyd hit, this that this that tends to be this whole interest on global you know, uh, learning about people on a global scale. And I say, well, let me just reach out to other countries. And then I'm also trying to think the way a publisher thinks, you know, their first response is going to be, who's going to buy this book? And I say, well, if, if I include more, if I make it more of a global thing, that would be a greater appeal. So that's why I began to include women from, from Asia and from, you know, other parts of the world. Most of them are still women of color, but, you know, but it's, it's a wider appeal. So, yeah. So that's, that's what I've been working on. So it's 11 playwrights, well, 11 writers in nine countries. So. You can only imagine that that book belongs right back in the library where those books didn't exist before. Right. Be able to hand that to the guy who didn't know that the black people know how to you know, design. I'm sorry. I never got his book. name. Yeah. I'm sorry. I never got the guy's <laughs> name. No, no, seriously, seriously. Because every day I thank him for that. It's like, I mean, it was another one of those moments that just altered my my whole life. It's like my friend telling me, you know, you can't act, go into lighting, how that changed my whole life. And this guy saying, you know, black people don't exist. And it's like, yes, we do. I'm going to prove to you that we do, you know, because I mean, I, I don't think I would be doing this had I not encountered him. So there have been days I wanted to thank him, but I don't even remember who he was. I don't know if he was an alum. I don't remember. I don't remember even seeing him again. Cool. That's the best way to move forward from those sort of things is to yeah. write that wrong and, and show that you are, that you exist and that, that he's wrong, basically, yeah. that uh, this has always been happening. Yeah. Or maybe I, I sometimes I think I say, well, maybe this guy was an <laughs> angel sent from God. And you know, maybe that's why I never saw him again or something. He just appeared. Yeah. Muses work in very weird ways sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So moving forward, in addition to uh, unions actually working together to uh, to be inclusive and diversive, 
and diversified. What more can we be doing to uh, include more diversity of opinion in the theater industry? Well, I think the union is taking a big step forward. I, I've only been active with USA primarily since the pandemic, or maybe since I've retired, because I have more time. And there are larger numbers of folks of color in the union now. In fact, the last meeting we had, there are union officers of color, and that had never happened before. I mean, this is like a first. So, you know, there's progress being made. They have an EDI committee, you know, uh, equity, diversity, and inclusive committee. So I think USA is definitely making some steps forward. We just need to see more of us in the designer's seat, you know, on shows. I don't know if you know the statistics. They're not very good. I think, uh, what was I looking at? Was it last season? 90% 90% of the designers on Broadway were white. So yeah. we'll see what happens when Broadway opens, you know. And for women, the numbers have always been bad. I think was a, there's a, a young lady named Portia McGovern who does all the statistics, primarily on women uh, in the professional theater. I think what, three years ago, I think less than 23% of the shows off-Broadway, on-Broadway, were designed by women. So it's it's pretty bad. All right. To change these numbers and make them reflect the actual population at large, does it need to come from the bottom up? Does this need to be a grassroots movement to, to raise awareness? Or is this a something that needs to come from the top down with regulations and, uh, and incentives? I don't know if it's regulations. I mean, this is really interesting because I was um, speaking at USITT. Um, first of all, it, it has to start with our schools uh, mm-hmm. because one of the questions was, how can USITT become more di- more diverse? I mean, I don't know if you go to USIT. Do you go to USITT? I have not gone to USITT, but I'm aware of the, the organization. Okay. Yes, it's it's the largest theater organization. <clears throat> anyway, so the issue was, how do we diversify USITT? And my, my solution was, it's not just USITT that you have to diversify. USITT is comprised of, you know, it's members or universities, uh, vendors, uh, theater companies, and I said, we need to make these organizations more diverse. Because one of the things that I spent doing, you know, during COVID, I spent a lot of time looking at websites, you know, departmental design websites and the faculty. You know, they're like 90% white. Uh, and the students, you know, in some of these programs, there are no students of color. I say we need to start at the university level first. You need to get young people into these programs. Then you'll see more people of color at USITT. These lighting firms or, you know, uh, costume makeup places, they need to get more people of color working there. Then you would see more people on the showroom floor, more people in these, you know, in these panels. So it, it, it really has to start there. And the same thing with theater companies, because one of the things they noticed is that there was a period where I stopped going to USITT. You know, part of it was deliberate. Part of it was I was just busy doing my research. And I, one of the things I would get turned off by, and this was true of other 
particularly other black designers that would go or teachers. We go into the showroom. I can't tell you how many times I've gone up to an ETC booth or uh, a Martin booth and someone said, do you know anything about lighting? And my big badge says professor of lighting, you know, MFA program. It's like, yeah, I know a little bit, you know, uh, can I explain this to you? I mean, it's not like, can I explain this new model, but do you know the difference between a, a, a leak ellipsoidal and a, uh, do you know what a barn door is? And it's like, oh God. So, you know, it, it, would, it would be that type of stuff that I would have to encounter. Or sometimes I would walk up to a vendor and they would just literally pretend that they didn't see me. They would just walk away. And so I expressed this to, you know, the management at USITT. I said, you know, this is what people have to go through. And I have a friend said he just stopped going. He stopped going to LDI. You probably go to LDI, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He said he went to LDI. He said LDI is even worse. He would walk up and he said, are you here to pick up a, a shipment for something? And it's like, no, I'm here to look at your equipment or whatever. No, I'm looking for a place to spend my money. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. And so they weren't even aware this was was going on. Uh, man, that's that so. A lot of it has to start with you know we've got to bring in these young kids at the undergrad level. Like I said, I've been saying repeating the same story over since 1980. You know, it, I feel like a broken record. You know, it's like, well, where do we find people? And when I left, when I was at Illinois, I. I ran the lighting program, the MFA program. When I came to UNC, you know, I was doing strictly history, but I was still designing. But the whole time I was at Illinois, every now and then somebody would call me and say, oh, we're trying to find a black MFA in lighting to, to, to you know, to fill a, a slot here. And then my first question would always be, how many have you graduated? And so, you know, if you don't graduate people, if you don't have a pipeline of students coming through, yeah, you're going to have a shortage of people to look for. So, you know, they call me as if I can just pull people out of my out of a hat. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, here we go. <laughs> but, you know, you, you, you've got to you've got to, you know, recruit students. <laughs> and the thing is, anytime, where do we anytime find they need a black designer? They just reach out to Kathy. Like, Kathy yeah. will know somebody. Yeah, I don't know somebody. I mean, usually I do. <laughs> <laughs> but you've also you've also got to bring young people into your program. And the other the other issue is I can't find any black people. It's like there's like 100 historically black colleges and universities. You can start there. Mm -hmm. You know, there's just no excuse. I mean, you know, the whole time I was at Illinois, I partnered with about five HBCUs, Howard, where I went to school two other schools in um, Atlanta, one in Florida, Florida a because they have very good theater programs, undergrad programs. And I was always able to have a pool of students, not just lighting, because I made sure there were black kids in stage management, costume design. I think I only had one in scene design. Yeah, and even acting. You know, it's like, okay, we've got this program, you know, just, just come here to grad school. Yeah, stage management, lighting, costume scenery sound it had like one or two in sound so what are the situations when when somebody needs a black designer or black mfa is it is it just for black plays and black productions or is it is it to fill no, a someone, no no it's to uh it's for a teaching position got it 
you're usually looking for MFAs for teaching positions. Got it. Okay. But now I'm getting a lot of calls from people looking for designers. You know, like it's it's some yeah. of the it's some of the regional theaters and um or you know smaller theaters and and or even teaching positions. You know, they're they're teaching positions that are out there. That sounds like progress to me. It sounds kind of counterintuitive that somebody's looking for somebody based on their skin color, but it also, it, it, it sounds like that's how we include, that's how we move forward. Well, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's called diversity. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's how we bring in new opinions and new experiences. I mean, not only just skin color, doing. of course, you, you know, qualified people, you of know, of course. Yeah. Well, sorry. I didn't mean to overlook that, but yeah, of course they, they have right. to be equally qualified, but sometimes just having that, different background or just somebody to look in come in and say like you guys have completely overlooked three quarters of the world here you're you're not right. doing a world theater here it's just just that simple sometimes right. like hey you guys you you've got some blinders on he needs to knock them off your head right and when i tell when i tell um undergrad students particularly undergrad students of well even even white kids i said if you apply to school and it's an all-white department you don't need to be there because this is 2021 and it's, that says a lot about where they are. It is. That's something that we have to pay attention to. And we have to ask those questions. How did it get to be that way? Yeah. That is a, that's a lot to take in. That's a lot of inflection that we got to kind of look at and kind of realize what have we not been told in order to get to this place in time and space. I definitely look forward to seeing when your new book comes out. I will definitely uh, make sure to share that when it comes out so we can get the word out. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, usually it takes, I mean, I don't know. This is the first time I've worked with this publisher. You know, it may come out. Sometimes the book will come out within 12 months after you submit everything, depending on how much editing has to be done and, you know, whatever. And with COVID, most people are working at home. So I don't, I don't know what's going to happen. It may, right. it may take even longer because everybody's at home mm -hmm. and the book is coming out of the UK and they're on lockdown, still on lockdown over there. Oh, oh. yeah. Well, I heard you mention that in the beginning yeah. of the podcast. Oh, sorry. Thank you so much for your time, Kathy. I will definitely leave a link to your website, kathyaperkins.com, where they can take a look at, <laughs> keep up with your upcoming books. Right. Thank you for the your time, Kathy. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm.